Edwina Farley with you for A Country Breakfast here on RN. How would you feel about investing in a farm in return for lovely fresh produce? It's known as community supported agriculture and has thousands of members in the United States and it's soon to be found at a farm near you. And while consumers love that connection with the food, it also makes a big difference to how a farm runs. Because the customers pay up front for a block of weeks, um, it means that we're able to buy you know, all the seedlings, all the, all the things that we need to produce the food and have that money up front. First, though, let's have a look at some of the other big rural news stories this week. Good morning, Serena Locke. Hello, Edwina. Now, live exports back on the agenda, mainly because of some uh, promised changes from industry. Yeah, so this is um, a reversal of previous positions by the Livestock Exporters Council. It's indicated for the first time it backs an independent animal welfare inspector. Um, Now... It would be an Inspector General position, which was first proposed by Labor about five years ago. And Labor's Joel Fitzgibbon uh, has said that this is a surprise but welcome move. And it comes, as we know, after shocking revelations that almost 2,500 Australian sheep died from heat stress on board a ship bound for the Middle East last August and animals being mistreated also in a Qatari abattoir. Um, The Chairman of the Livestock Exporters Council, the former Labor Minister Simon Crean, says the monitor will improve the system, but he also concedes it's not possible to prevent all animal deaths. We know that that's not going to be achievable. It's a bit like zero deaths on the road. It's an aspiration and you've got to keep continuous improvement to get those figures down. And some ships, Edwina, have been blocked from leaving, particularly the exporter Emmanuel, which was caught up in the um, last year's um, situation of 2,500 sheep dying. They had a shipment destined for the Middle East just recently with 65,000 sheep on board. That was prevented from leaving Fremantle. But other ships are leaving, and one has been loaded in Adelaide this week, and the state government there is taking no risks. The South Australian Agriculture Minister Tim Whetstone says in the wake of the recent scandal his department would be at the dock to monitor proceedings. It was an atrocity that uh, has let down the industry and its farmers. What I've actually sought to do is to make sure that if people are going to go down and uh, and protest at the boat, keep an eye on just how the sh- uh, sheep are being loaded on, the density numbers that are now uh, under review. It's an interesting step that state governments are are taking their own action and indeed they are responsible mainly for animal welfare regulation within their states, but it's a federal regulatory system that deals with live exports as such. What's happening at a federal level politically? Well, politically it's a very hot issue, but for the first time we're seeing perhaps a split in in the parties here. A Liberal backbencher will defy government policy and seek a support for a bill to end live sheep export trade. So that's Susan Lee. Uh, she says footage of heat stress sheep dying on the live export ships shocked Australia and the federal government, as we know, has ordered an urgent review of the trade. But Ms Lee says she'll seek support from across the parliament for a private members' bill to phase out live sheep exports. The issue for the sheep in this crossing is between May and October, the temperatures are so high that it is virtually impossible to transport the animals in a humane way. 
as you mentioned, a, a bit of a split between those coalition partners, a different view of events from the Nationals. Yeah, so the National Party's already dismissed it. The Deputy Leader Bridget McKenzie is warning against a knee-jerk reaction and she says that the effects of the live cattle export ban in 2011 that Labor imposed shouldn't be repeated. Farmers going broke, local regional economies bucketing out, uh, people committing suicide. I mean, we're not going to allow that sort of reaction to occur. I think the Minister's been incredibly responsible and respectful in the way he's dealt with this. Well, it's not the first time a private member's bill has been uh, mooted. There's been a number of crossbenchers who have gone down that path, so it'll be interesting to see where that ends up. Yeah. The other topic that's on everyone's lips at the moment, because it is such a strange Indian summer, you might call it, why on earth is autumn feeling like summer? Well, we're seeing heat waves that we've never seen before in April, and um, that's a phenomenon we're experiencing across southern Australia. And um, it's very, very dry and, in fact, you know, one in 20-year rainfall deficiencies is what sort of uh, Victoria is experiencing at the moment. Sowing winter crops should be underway, yes. especially around Anzac Day. This is the, like this sort of, you know, traditional marker, isn't it, the Anzac Day planting? Yeah, um, and normally lush, green, grassy hills of East Gippsland is bone dry and farms like Chris Nixon's, uh, who's got beef and dairy cattle, would normally look lovely and green, but the outlook look is, uh, as I said, bare and brown. He says the region's going through its fourth failed season, which made conditions worse than the millennium drought. We've actually cleaned out 24 dams. We've sold 15% of the dairy herd. We've sold 25% of the beef herd and the rest of the beef herd's on adjustment in New South Wales. It's pretty tough. We're fifth generation. Our family sent cattle to Queensland in the 1890s and uh, my cattle are in New South Wales today. So uh, that's probably the equivalent as far as our family's concerned on, on having to deal with the conditions that are presented at the moment. That's yeah. Chris Nixon, yeah, and he was at a, um, a big agricultural field day, so I think probably just cheering himself up there. Yeah, some of the photos floating around on, on social media certainly are really desperate times. It looks like, you know, mid-January. <laughs> it's just yeah. dreadful in, in paddocks. Yeah. More, well, happier times for mm -hmm. the wine industry after, well, a, a real kind of makeover, I guess, from the height of the 80s boom. We're, we're entering yeah. another wine boom, but a bit more of a positive one. Well, yeah, and there's a nice segue here here actually because the drought and the dry conditions have made for a quite a nice drop so say all of the winemakers but um, as for exports we've um, risen to 2.65 billion dollars worth over the past year almost half of that over a billion dollars is going to greater China so that includes uh, Hong Kong Macau and these are the highest wine export figures in a decade Edwina um, and growth in China is a remarkable 51 percent yearly increase and it's the first time Australia has exported more than a billion dollars worth of wine to one single country. And uh, the CEO of Wine Australia, Andreas Clark, says that's quite an achievement. We are very well placed there. Um, and the success seemingly has come quite quickly. But that said, those who are really enjoying the success there have actually been there for 10, 15 years and even longer. So what might appear by to be overnight success is actually off the back of you know over a decade plus of, of really hard work cultivating that market and really now uh, reaping dividends for our exporters. 
Yes, and we've talked quite a lot, haven't we, about the whole education of that market around what wine is meant to taste like and how it matches with their food. And it's definitely not been an overnight process. No, that's right. And I think they're still dealing, on top of a billion dollars worth of exports of Australian, genuine Australian wine, still dealing with fraud, sort of, you know, yes. pain folds or pain felds or however All it's manner labelled. of bizarre labels. That's right, in China. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, we are obsessed with berries and, and they're in every supermarket market and they're at amazing prices. But there's some interesting kind of tussles going on within the berry industry. Yeah, that's right. So there's a hydroponic strawberry farm slated to be built in one of two states, Victoria or South Australia. And the company Berry Sensation says it really doesn't want to be too far from Melbourne. So that will be a factor. Um, and Berry Sensation has been considering developing a $35 million glass house in southeast South Australia at Wattle Range. And it's been offered $2 million support by that government um, to support jobs and growth. Um, but it's also eyeing off the Latrobe Valley in Victoria for the 12-hectare glasshouse, and it has $3 million worth of federal funding if it goes ahead in Victoria. Now, Barry Richard says because of the investment required, it's one or the other, so it won't be both. We've been working on this program for about two years now. We've been fully operational as a, a berry grower for... Um, four years now, um, six years of development in the in the strawberry sector, um, but actually producing for about four years and, and uh, can't keep up with the demand of our product in the market. So it's time for expansion and we've been designing and uh, exploring the opportunities for a couple of years now. So we'll see who wins out of that tussle. It's not a bad position to be in, is it? No, that's right. Do but we do funding? love our berries. Well, that's funny. <laughs> we do indeed. Serena, thank you. Thank you, Rena. You can find out more about all of those stories. Just head online to the RN homepage and search for A Country Breakfast. Hey, Natasha Mitchell, bringing you Science Friction Weekly now on RN. Next, the secrets of the flesh. I turned on the lights. Unearthing ancient tattoos. And I can't see anything on the skin. 5,000-year-old mummies. Oh, my goodness. That was a real surprise. <laughs> Self-experimenting archaeologists. I figured I couldn't ask anybody to do it if I wasn't willing to do it myself. Science Friction, Sunday, 1pm. Grab the podcast or on the ABC Listen app. This week we take you out of the consulting room and into the paddock for an equine therapy session. Yes, horses are helping patients deal with their trauma, anxiety and stress. Someone else helping to put a smile on people's faces is Rick Thompson-Jones. He's the man responsible for building quirky sand sculptures on a beach at Port Macquarie. We'll also duck down to Tassie to visit a boutique duck farm and meet a dog with an acute sense of smell. Yes, good dog. He lives for it. So he's from a special line of what we call working spaniels. So they're not just dogs that would be content playing a game of fetch in the backyard. They live for what we call the hunt. Um, when he hears that word find, you can just see it's like Christmas and Disneyland all at once for Connor. Yes, good boy. Connor and his handler Ryan Tate have been looking for alligator weed. We'll join them in a swamp near Griffith later in the show. But let's get started in a horse yard near Wollongong, where psychologist Sam Tassany has converted a horse float into an office. 
It's, uh, it's called equine-assisted psychotherapy. And uh, what it is, is it's a combination of a mental health professional with horses. And instead of having therapy in a room, in an office, speaking with someone, we take them into a paddock and we have the therapy session in the outdoors with the horses present. Picture your standard psychology clinic consulting room. A couple of comfortable chairs, a private space, perhaps a box of tissues. Would you feel better if a horse was there? Hello, I'm Justin Hunsdale. Equine therapy involves taking a psychology session out of the room and into the paddock. And it's not just a fad. Equine therapy has growing research behind it to show the benefits of bringing horse and patient together. Sam Tassini is a psychologist and equine therapist working at Wombara, which is just north of Wollongong in New South Wales. I've joined her in the horse yard to find out more. The, uh, the therapy session it becomes this metaphorical session where people are building things and they're working with the horses and it's hands-on rather than just traditional talk therapy. It could be anything from building a fear in the session and then having naming the horse something that they need to overcome that fear and moving the horse to that fear. It could be just simply being with the horses and patting them and, and being mindful and present with the horse. It could be doing some kind of groundwork with the horse, moving the horse through an obstacle course. Um, but it always comes back to how the horse is responding to the client and, um, and how the client is handling the situation or the activity. What does having the horse there do for the, the client? Horses, because they're prey animals, they are naturally present. They need to always be aware of what's going on in their surroundings because they need to know when they need to flee from danger. So um, they have this natural grounding to them and this connectedness and that allows the client to also have that um, ability to be present when they're working with the horse. They're also social animals, they have a social structure so when a client is working with them, if the client isn't being a leader towards the horse, being calm and confident, then the horse is going to simply walk away. If the client has walks into the arena with anxieties or with stress, the horse is going to move away from that energy. Um, but if someone walks in there and they're calm, they're relaxed, or they turn to become more calm and relaxed, then the horse responds as well and, um, and changes the way that it behaves and responds to them. It seems like a, a style of psychology that would suit some people and not others. Uh, what, what does it work particularly well for? Yeah, it works really well for trauma, I've seen, because there's that ability to build a relationship, to form trust, um, and to not have to talk about such challenging issues that people have gone through. There's a lot of silence in the arena, so people who have gone through trauma who don't necessarily want to rehash what they've gone through in such explicit talk therapy, um, they really respond well to equine therapy because the horses are there to be there, to listen, to be present and to work with them and give them feedback, but not to tell them what to do or what they should be feeling or how to get over it or anything like that. So um, trauma therapy, PTSD with veterans, it's particularly helpful. There's a couple of horses in front of us, one much smaller than the other, I should point out as well, Sam. It, it, uh, it's like, is that a Shetland pony out there? Actually, um, it's a miniature pony. So I think it goes miniature pony, then miniature horse, then Shetland. So it's sort of two levels down from a Shetland. And these are, are just two of the horses that are used as part of your equine therapy. And people who, who might be listening to this now might be thinking, oh, is this just a weird 
aspect of science, but it's not actually. There is some research to back this up. What can you tell us about that? There is definitely research to back it up and the research is growing. When I first uh, started my training in equine therapy in, I think, 2011, there wasn't that much. The research was really sparse and there was definitely um, people who were questioning what, whether this was sort of hippy-dippy stuff and whether the horses were really helping or whether it was just an excuse for some mental health professionals to be outside with their horses instead of having to sit in an office. And um, as the years have gone on, people have been putting research to the work that they're doing with their clients and we're seeing results and results in a faster period of time. The treatment time... I've noticed is much faster than traditional talk therapy. What what maybe took me six months with one of my talk therapy sessions, I can get through in sort of six sessions. And for you, it's been wonderful to blend two of your passions, being psychology and horses. Had you heard about this and, and, it, and it jumped out to you, or is it just kind of a fluke that it's been able to blend two of your interests? It's a funny story, actually. I was driving up to see my horses, and I was with my dad, and... Uh, I was in my fourth year of psychology and I said to him, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. This isn't for me. I don't like sitting in an office. I don't like counselling people. It drains me. I feel so tired at the end of the day. I I just don't think I can do this. And he threw out a question to me that I always used to throw out to other people and said, well, what would you do if you could do anything in your life? And I said, well, I'd train horses or be around my horses and I would help people somehow. And I went online and the only place that they did the training was in America. So it was the Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association. And I flew over to the States, did my training and and came back ready to go. So tell me, where where do the horses come from that you work with here? The horses here are all rescue horses. So they come from different backgrounds, but all with uh, neglect, abuse or some kind of trauma. So uh, what's really special about these horses is that they understand what a lot of the clients have, are going through and, um, and that allows the clients to feel really connected and to be able to build a trusting relationship with the, with the animals. How do the horses feel about being the assistant psychologist? <laughs> well, they haven't complained to me yet. <laughs> no, there, there are times though that they, they're very honest. Their feedback is completely genuine and honest. So if someone goes in there and they bring in this discrepant energy and they're confusing and they're stressed and they're um, anxious the horses respond that way and we have to be really careful that our horses are you know doing the right self-care and we're looking after them and we're giving them the appropriate breaks so that they can continue on because just like there's burnout for therapists there's burnout for the animals as well and they will just stop responding as well in therapy if we don't look after them and keep their needs in our mind. It gives people a smile, for sure, and and that's why I do it. Rick Thompson-Jones has certainly made his presence felt since moving to the New South Wales coastal town of Port Macquarie two years ago. You can't miss him if you run into him on popular Shelley Beach. He's always dressed in brightly coloured clothes, hence the nickname Rainbow Rick. But it's his beach sculptures that really hit the mark with locals and visitors alike, always putting a smile on everyone's face. Hello, I'm Emma Siossian. Rick doesn't just use shells and pieces of driftwood, he also likes to include stuffed toys, knickknacks and even books in his whimsical sculptures. 
His creative juices started flowing several years ago when he was living in Queensland. I think it was because I was caring for my father up at Sandgate in Queensland, Morton Bay, and he was on the beachfront area. He couldn't walk with his mates, so I did a funny little thing over on the walkway near the water for one of their birthdays and they got enjoyment from it but I saw that other people got enjoyment as well so that's how come I started and then I do them on public holidays or Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, whatever. But, uh, yeah. Is it a lot of hours put into each one? I do it at night time and try and have it finished by daylight and normally I put in at least five hours, sometimes it will take me all night and like especially if I've got a bucket sand up because I bucket sand up for the one I've done now I might spend hours bucketing sand up from taking the sand from below high water mark. People mostly respectful of your sculptures, they, they stay pretty unharmed? Yeah, it's hardly ever have uh, incidents where people muck it up and the first one I did here when I moved down just over two years ago was on Australia Day weekend and I did one and I set it up and then I went off for the day and I'm not here and, and I came back late in the afternoon to pick up koalas, whatever I, toys, whatever I had on the installation. And a lady came up to me and she said, she said, I've been here during the day. She said, and I'm amazed that nobody took anything and nobody mucked it up. And she said, it's really improved my outlook on people. Despite his colourful clothes and range of quirky sculptures, Rick says he has no artistic training. In fact, his school teachers would be surprised to see what he's doing these days. I found my old school report from high school a little while ago. I said, and I looked at it and I failed art. <laughs> <laughs> but I just say, I think everybody's an artist in some way or other. Artistic training or not, Rick's beach sculptures certainly impressed locals and visitors to the area. The first time I saw this display was last April and so for Easter and Christmas and Australia Day and just the difference that this man who comes down and shares his um, creativity, it's just amazing. Rick says he plans to continue making his beach installations to mark special events throughout the year. To him, it's a rewarding hobby. It gives people a smile, for sure, and, and that's why I do it, because I figure that if it gives somebody a smile, it's worthwhile. And the enjoyment too, I think, it's surprising that silly little simple things can give pleasure. You know? And gives you a smile too? Yeah, yeah, it gives me a smile too. And, um, and also, I think one of the really lovely things about it is when somebody stops and they look at it and then somebody else looks at it and then they get into conversation and a lot of times people have said to me, oh, that's so-and-so there talking and we've got so much in common, you know? So that's one of the good sides of it, I think. It's like me sitting here with you now. That's right. <laughs> We're having a chat and it's uplifting us both, I'd say. Yeah, in the shade <laughs> of this big Norfolk Island pie. With the sound of the waves behind us, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a magic spot. Yeah. yeah. Rick Thompson-Jones, also known as Rainbow Rick, putting a smile on people's faces on Shelley Beach at Port Macquarie. Still to come, we're going to meet a three-year-old Springer Spaniel called Connor. 
and a former chicken meat farmer comes up with a quacking good idea. I got the idea for the business years ago when um, eating eating at a restaurant and wondered why there was options for free-range chicken or grass-fed lamb or free-range pork and then just duck. There was no, no real option. It's taken some time, but Matthew Crane has finally turned his idea of producing free-ranging pastured ducks into a reality. He's got more than a hundred breeding birds on this small farm called Strellyfield in northern Tasmania, supplying local restaurants and butcher shops with fresh duck product. Hello, I'm Hilary Burden. Matthew started his breeding program 18 months ago and has both Pekin and Muscovy ducks waddling freely in the paddocks and paddling in the water. It's a far cry from his previous life working in the intensive chicken meat industry on the mainland. I've been wanting to do uh, ducks for a number of years and this sort of enough things lined up that um, I thought it's worth uh, having having a good crack at. Yeah. And how many ducks are sounding very chirpy this morning? They how are many very chirpy. Have? We've got about 120 breeding ducks here is what we're in amongst at the moment. Um, so they'll be uh, laying our eggs. We have invested in a, quite a large incubator which can do about a thousand duck eggs a week um, which we're not looking to, to uh, max out at all in any time soon but um, it's certainly going to give us the capacity to hopefully meet a fair bit of demand within the state for, for free-range duck. We'd love to be able to get to the point where we can uh, get fresh ducks off the farm and, and into the restaurant a few days later. We're putting them into uh, portable shelters, which we move around, around the pasture. They are free-ranging uh, completely, but they've got a portable shelter where we uh, house their feed and their water. Um, and uh, that, that model of getting them to be able to experience the Tasmanian uh, pastures and fossick through them for things like worms and um, mollusks and insects and, of course, the grass and clover as well uh, really leads to what we hope is a really um, vividly different taste in the meat to what you get uh, from the supermarket product. And how big do you want to get? Uh, not particularly big, um, I think. Uh, I think you lose a lot of the romance and the lifestyle as you get bigger. My background prior to starting this, I um, was in the chicken meat industry in, for about 10 years. Uh, so we had a, a farm on the mainland with about 500,000 chickens on it and I don't want to go back to anything like that uh, at all. This is uh, 100 ducks is, is quite nice. It's a nice, nice little lifestyle. I think there's probably obviously room to grow but I wouldn't want to get too big. Having said that, I'd love to think that we can, with the hatchery we've got, if we can build an abattoir in the future as well, that we could actually start a bit of a niche industry for the state and we can get some other established farmers on board with what could be a, you know another little earner for them and uh, we might have lots and lots of different duck farms in 10 years time down here which would be uh, marvellous. Can we meet the ducks? Certainly yep I haven't named all of them. <laughs> all 100. Um, but uh, so these guys they're a good mixture of boys and girls we have about uh, one boy to five girls in here uh, that's a pretty important ratio to get uh, to get correct because the boys are pretty voracious lovers and uh, the girls uh, understandably get a bit sick of that if, if you get that uh, ratio wrong you can see them over here at the moment they're just in a bit of a makeshift pond we're putting up we're trying to work out um, we do have some swimming water available to them like that but the issue is keeping that clean because they love nothing more than making it very very messy so at the moment we're filling that up uh, twice a day and then letting that drain out um, there it's keeping them obviously pretty content in there as you can see yeah some of them are flapping their wings they're having yeah, a bath so they, having a wash in um, it's, it's pretty important uh, they, they certainly need to be able to submerge their beaks 
clean their nostrils and their eyes out with water, which they can do with the um, with the bell drinkers anyway. But this is this is really just for uh, for joy, I suppose, uh, to see that how happy the ducks are when they get in there and, and really flap around like that and splash each other and uh, have their little uh, little fights and and pecks at each other. It's, yeah. it's it's really really good fun to watch. Give a duck some water and you can see that the behaviour that you don't really see in chicken is that that um, that pure joy at uh, getting in and being able to splash their mates. And swim like a duck. Swim like a duck. That's I think right. That's a saying, isn't it? <laughs> if it's not, it should be. Yep. <laughs> it walk like a duck. <laughs> It is quite entertaining. They, they do have a funny gait about them as they walk along that uh, classic waddle, um, especially when they're in a hurry. It's, it is quite, um, you have a bit of a chuckle to yourself. But the, the other thing about a small farm like this is, is you do get to um, spend a bit more time with the, with the birds. I think when I was in broiler farming, I did work out it was about 13 seconds we got to spend with every bird uh, for, for the duration of its life. So this is um, totally, I think the ducks get sick of me actually coming to see them most days but um and that that's part of the thing of keeping animals i think every anyone who keeps animals you know loves the animals and and uh, certainly that was the case in chicken farming as well there's some very dedicated people work there but um it's yeah it's nice to be able to to uh to stand around on a beautiful sunny day like this and enjoy them uh, enjoy them a bit He lives for it. So he's from a special line of what we call working spaniels. Um, his father, his mother, all the dogs in his litter and the following litters are all working dogs. So they're not just dogs that would be content playing a game of fetch in the backyard. They live for what we call the hunt. Even though he's only hunting a plant, he's using his nose to hunt out something and get a, a retrieval reward or a food-based reward at the end of finding something. So this is what he lives for. Um, when he hears that word, find, you can just see it's like Christmas and Disneyland all at once for Connor. Good boy. And today this three-year-old English Springer Spaniel has a nose for alligator weed. It's a noxious plant that authorities believe could cost farmers in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area $250 million a year if left uncontrolled. Hello, I'm Cara Jeffrey. I've joined conservation detection dog Connor and his handler Ryan Tate at the Barrenbox Swamp near Griffith in the Riverina region of New South Wales. It's the perfect location for a water-loving dog with a good nose to hang out for the day. So before he gets to work, we always say to him, Connor, where's a weed? And that's how he knows that we're actually working, we're not just having a run around. And he has to show me a little bit of obedience beforehand, and that's how I know he's, he's pretty happy with the environment, he's not too distracted by anything. And then when I say, find, he's now allowed to go and hunt. Come here, buddy. We're looking for a plant called alligator weed and this is something that uh, we've recently trained Connor to find. He's a very good detection dog at finding another plant called hawkweed which grows in the alpine region of Australia and we wanted to add to his repertoire. So there are a couple of known sites of alligator weed out here and so today we're trying to see how well he goes on the areas we know about and if he discovers anything brand new today. And what can Connor do and what can he find that people can't find? So usually we use a dog when either something is in really high grassland where it's difficult for us to spot or maybe things like drones aren't so useful. Um, out in water, he's a terrific swimmer being a spaniel, um, so he can swim out and find weeds growing in water. And sometimes as well, just the really small components of the weed that may have broken off or might be shooting up in the ground, which to you and I doesn't look like anything, has a very distinct odour for the dog. How bad is alligator weed out here? Uh, look, at the moment the weeds officers are doing a terrific job at keeping it under control and the idea of using things like dogs and drones is to hopefully eradicate um, or, or have a greater control of the weed. Um, this is the kind of weed that can double every two weeks, so if it's not 
adequately controlled. Um, it can take over waterways, which is you know terrible for biodiversity as well as agriculture. Talk me through a day for yourself and Connor when you arrive out here at a swamp. So usually when we start off in the morning, uh, we start you know just on sunrise. Uh, put a GPS collar on Connor, and I uh, have one on me as well, so we can record where we've gone and how far. And uh, when he starts in the morning, it's probably his favourite time of the day. He loves hearing the word find. Um, that's what his genetic fulfilment is all about, finding things. So when he hears that word, we're off for anywhere from sort of 10 minutes to an hour at a time. Then we'll break for a while, give him a good rest, a big drink, um, and we'll maybe move to a new location or go over the same location again or somewhere similar. So how long is a working day for Connor? Uh, it really depends on the conditions, but it, you know, an average day for him can be anywhere from two hours up to eight hours in the field. Uh, on a really big day, we might cover 25, 30 kilometres on foot. Um, again, if that's if the conditions are favourable, um, you know, today's pretty hot and humid. We might knock that down to sort of 10, 15 k's today. How many days a week does he have to work? Uh, usually we try and do a week on, a week off for Connor. At the end of the week, um, you know, he and I are both pretty exhausted, so we'll go home or I'll go into another project with another dog and Connor will pretty much have a week off, get lots of good tucker, lots of cuddles at home, and then he'll be raring to go by the end of that week to work again. What's the terrain like that Connor works in? So it'll be highly diverse. Uh, one of the locations we're at this morning had a lot of weeds and burrs that were really getting into his coat and into his feet. So I have to make a call there that the dog's not suitable for that environment. Give him a thorough groom, make sure he's happy and, and content before we get out into it. Most terrains, we really don't find many difficulties, but I do spend almost as much time grooming dogs in the afternoon as I do actually looking for plants and animals in the field. Yeah, stuff in the water. Connor. So from the work that you've done here now, what do you and Connor do with those results and your findings? Uh, so we, whenever we get a new find, we GPS and flag the site. And uh, I usually, if I've got radio range, I'll radio in and, and tell the uh, the relevant stakeholders what we've found. Um, and then we sort of go over and we review it next week and look at what have we covered, what was effective, what was a bit slow going. And then we, we sort of, we don't want to double up over areas that are easily surveyed by people on foot or by vehicles. So we're, we're probably going to follow most of the sort of wet kind of areas where um, the plant likes being and kind of comes into his strengths. And at the moment you're out here working with Murrumbidgee Irrigation. What's the demand like for these type of dogs and this type of detection work? Uh, it's it's constantly exploding. So um, I'm getting booked further and further and further out in advance with these style of jobs um, for threatened species, um, particularly small mammals and um cryptic species that are difficult to find such as koalas and uh, there's a dog that's just been deployed in Western Australia who's actually finding uh, leaking water pipes underground as well. Um, so yeah there's probably in Australia at the moment uh, 20 what we call certified conservation detection dogs and these are dogs like Connor that have gone through a really rigorous testing process to ensure that they're not only effective at their job but they're really safe. They're safe with people, they're safe with animals, they're not going to go and harass some of the beautiful native wildlife we've got out here. They they have one sole focus and that's finding their target. Um, it's really exciting being in a field where we're, we're just sort of scratching the surface and we're, we're finding new abilities of these beautiful animals every day. Yes, good dog. Who's a good boy? Who's a Ryan Tate there talking about the work that Connor and the other conservation detection dogs are doing in Australia. Imagine that, being able to sniff out leaking water pipes. Very handy indeed. Thanks to Cara Jeffrey for that story from Barren Box Swamp near Griffith in New South Wales.
When one of Australia's wealthiest investors comes to town, small businesses might be forgiven for feeling their ship had come in. But the promise of sweet returns has turned sour for some. If you ask my wife, it's been very stressful. Lisa would say, listen, this buddy account out here at Camberna Holdings has got to uh, 10 grand, you're not going out there. How the collapse of a Goulburn Valley dairy is sending shockwaves through town coming up. Sunday afternoons. Spend them here on RN. With me, David Rutledge. And me, Lynn Malcolm. As we explore ethics and logic in the Philosopher's Zone. And take a fascinating look at human behaviour with All in the Mind. Stay tuned to take an intimate look at people and culture with earshot and conversations. Or explore the zeitgeist with Stop Everything and Science Friction. Culture, science and modern life. Sunday afternoons on RN and on the ABC Listen app. A popular US farming model where consumers subscribe to farms is taking off in Australia. Thousands of farms use the model in the US where consumers share the risks of the season alongside the farmer and receive produce as their return on investment. It's still relatively new in Australia, but as Jess Davis reports, small-scale farms are beginning to adopt it. At Pig and Earth Farm, just outside Dalesford in central Victoria... Owners Will Bennett and Emma Horsburgh have just made their first delivery of pork to their new customers. But what makes this free-range pig and chicken farm a little different from others is a business model known as community-supported agriculture. We chose the CSA model because it's economically more viable and takes away a lot of the risks and also connects us with our consumers, which is nice. The scheme enables customers to buy shares in a farm. Then in return, they receive some of the produce that it generates. The upfront payment from customers helps cover the farmer's costs, taking away many of the economic risks they face. I think CSAs are a really good option for you know new first generation or young farmers. Much better than trying to kind of play ball with like the big supermarkets and stuff like that because I think that's just not a viable option for a lot of people. Um, and yet, I mean, farmers markets are okay, but I think CSAs are the best kind of way to get in the game. Farmer Emma Horsburgh says the concept isn't just about the economics. You know, I think it's really important, particularly as young farmers, to be working towards building alternatives to, you know, industrial, global intensive agriculture. Um, I think increasingly people are finding out what happens in industrial agriculture and they're not happy about it. And I think if we're in the position to provide alternatives, then that's a really important building block towards change. Just down the road, Darianne and Tim Wyatt have been growing organic vegetables in the area for a decade. But 12 months ago, the central Victorian farmers switched to CSA. We see it as a way for us to better establish our farm and shore up a viable income ongoing into the future. And secondly, just because it really enhances our idea of how we want to relate with the people that we're feeding um, and be able to build a community between us and the eaters around what we all believe in and how we want food to be grown transparently and as safely as possible and to conserve food sovereignty. And how's it been going so far? It's been, it's been really good for us and it, it, it is a, a really good way of, of connecting with the people, with people and, and being able to get that feedback about, about your produce on a weekly basis. And in terms of business and economics, what are the advantages to using this? Because the customers pay up 
front for a block of weeks. Um, it means that we're able to buy you know all the seedlings all the all the things that we need to produce the food and have that money up front um, instead of it being the other way around where you've got to buy everything in and have the cash flow and be able to you know produce it all and get it to market and then you get the return for it and plus it's also about uh, a mutual sort of obligation if for some reason a crop fails um, and it's not because of our own fault. They take some of that uh, risk as well. And you're planning on expanding it as you continue down this path? Um, yeah, we'd really like to. It definitely, the signs are that there is a genuine desire for that to happen. And the size we are now with our CSA isn't really big enough. It's more like a trial if, if you like, in terms of the size of it. So to make, to achieve what we want to achieve in terms of keeping the farm going for quite a few years to come and, and earning a viable income, it will need to expand somewhat. But from what we can tell, um, people really love it. Dr Rachel Carey is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. The model's been around um, in, in the United States since around the mid-1980s, so around 30 years ago, and they started there with just a couple of farms. But that number grown to around 60 farms or so within five years. And in fact, now in the United States, there are over 7,000 CSA farms around the country. Uh, those farms are actually generating over 226 million um, US dollars in sales each year. So it's really quite a, a significant model in the United States and in some other countries as well, like in the United Kingdom and in Canada, it's very much of a growing model. And what are we seeing here in Australia? Are we seeing people starting to adopt it here? So we are definitely seeing people starting to adopt the CSA model in Australia. There's still a relatively small number of CSA farms, but that model is growing. Um, it tends to be smaller scale farmers often who are starting to use that model. They might be closer to cities and closer to a community of people who can support that farm. But that's not the case for Josh McIntosh, a farmer from Taplin in South Australia's Mallee. Uh, the, the real value point with, for the CSA is having a continuity of demand, having a consistent level of demand through the year rather than dribs and drabs um, because it makes it easier for us to plan um, and, and so yeah, if a, if a customer can commit to that continuity of demand then we can commit to the continuity of supply. He believes more farmers will get on board the CSA model. Farmers have always responded to market demand and this is our response to our market's demand. So I think as that demand grows, then more people will find it viable. The CSA Australia and New Zealand network has just launched. So far, there are only 24 farms registered. But founder Sally Rulianzic says more are joining every week. But, you know, until a couple of weeks ago, there was no single point of directory for all CSAs. And if we can combine as one voice, we can get the message out clearer that this is one of the best ways that you can support a farming family and this is the best way that you can get to know how your food is grown. Oh, we just love the whole concept of um, sustainable, ethical, close by, and we just really, really like to support especially young businesses and new businesses. Customer Marianne Lavelle has already jumped on board the idea. The Dalesford resident says she's happy to take a little risk with how she gets the food she eats. We're very willing because 
we just like to support and help and um, it, there's always a little risk, but I think it's risk worth taking. CSA customer Marianne Lavelle ending that story from Jess Davis. Well, investment isn't as simple as the community-supported model might make out because the failure of a large corporate dairy, partly owned by billionaire Jerry Harvey, has been seen as the loss of another high-profile investor in the industry. Left Behind is a community and a collection of small businesses owed large amounts of money. From Victoria's Goulburn Valley, Warwick Long has the story. Kumbuna was a mega dairy that had backing from one of Australia's most high-profile businessmen, Jerry Harvey. When it collapsed and entered receivership, it had 9,000 cows, was milking 2,700 of those and owned nearly 500 stud dairy bulls. But it hadn't been paying its bills, bills from small business owners like David Bolton. Yeah, if I used... And a, a term that I have used, it's been more of a petting farm for a dairy, dairy farm than it has been a reality farm. With the, Like I say, there's a $4.1 million feed system sitting out there to mix their own feed. Well, uh, now that's sitting dormant. David Bolton is like a podiatrist for cows. He looks after their feet. His business, Bolton's Hoof Trimming, has been going to Coomboona Dairy for over a decade. Well, it's been off and on, and I say that due to the for the, the payment scheme out there for 12 years has been off and on. If you ask my wife, it's been very stressful. Lisa would say, listen, this buddy account out here at Kambuna Holdings has got to uh, 10 grand, you're not going out there. So over this last period, you've gone through periods of your account getting up to serious amounts of money for your business, then you refusing to work, them then paying, and then you going yeah. back out there, and that cycle repeating. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a lot of catch-up. People are going to say, why'd you keep going out there? But I'll tell you why I keep going out there. You get friends with the managers, you get friends with the staff, and they rely that Bolton's going to arrive on Tuesday to get these cows sorted. How much are you owed now? I'd rather not... Uh, I'd rather not... Well, certainly I feel silly that we've let it get out to where it has, and it's completely... Uh, I take it on the chin that it's my fault not communicating with my beautiful wife who who does all the book work. But it, it's, it's a substantial amount of money. You're a small family business and we're talking more than $10,000 here, aren't we? Uh, yes, we are. Yeah, we're, Yes, we are talking more than that. Um, Do you think you're going to see that money again? I wouldn't think so, no. No, there is a lot of people owed money. How frustrated does that make you? frustrated to the point where it gives you the shits but I don't want it to happen again I just and it's not about the money for us it's about the lack of care for this community for a couple of fellas to come into this town particularly one that resides in Hong Kong and uh, and everything's sweet over there I'm sure but to to treat people particularly contractors it's a unbelievable community here and most of them very very hard working you know and relied on that uh, employment out there um, under some trying circumstances like I've said at different times it's just going to impact on a lot of people here and it's going to get wiped under the, uh, under the cup and nobody give it any more thought. ABC Rural has contacted other creditors to Kambuna Dairy who are owed tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Apart from David Bolton, none are willing to speak about their experiences yet. 
Somewhat pragmatically, he is sad to lose Jerry Harvey as an investor in the Australian dairy industry. You know, we've had a great investor that's been involved there the last 18 months. You know, a, a great Australian name that's been very successful in business. Well, what a shame he couldn't have been hung on to, you know, in the dairy and business because people look upon that as, oh, well... If he, you know, if they've walked away from that, there can't be too much money in Darien, and I'm really annoyed at that. David Bolton there, who runs the small business Bolton's Hoof Trimming, speaking with our reporter Warwick Long. Well, when milk processor Murray Goulburn foreshadowed closures to a number of factories around Victoria and Tasmania, a lot of the instant community reaction was around the loss of favourite products like well-known flavoured milk. Now, cooks in some of Australia's most remote kitchens are reeling after a common outback staple disappeared from supermarket shelves. Devondale Long Life Cream. The UHT cream, which is known for its ability to be whipped into firm peaks, was also one of the casualties of factory closures. From Mount Isa, Eric Barker has more. It's mustering time on many northern Australian cattle stations, which means there are plenty of tired and hungry mouths to feed. But this year, cattle station cooks are trying to keep the show running without one of their common staples which is the ever-versatile Devondale Long Life Cream. That includes Danielle Doyle, who posted an open letter to Devondale on her blog's Facebook page, a post that went viral. We realised that Devondale wasn't making Long Life Cream anymore, and so I just wrote a little post, Dear Devondale, thinking, you know, we want our cream. I thought maybe I was the only passionate person about Long Life Cream, but it turns out... Australia-wide, people are passionate about their long-life cream and they can't believe that it's gone. How, how far did that, you know, that post go as far as the engagement and people getting back to you? Massive. It literally went viral. Had about a 350,000 reach, 2.3,000 shares and about 1.8,000 comments. Were you surprised by that? Oh, blown away. I, can't, I couldn't believe it. People just are passionate about their long-life cream. Who'd have thought? Even city dwellers. So what, what were some of the main, I guess, main comments coming back to you about it? Oh, people who have been going into their local supermarket, even people from cities and towns, and they must go home after a while, after weeks of not being able to get it, and Google long life cream and then they figure out they see my post and that it's not available anymore and there's some cranky people out there. This might be a silly question but I, I notice a lot of stations people freeze the milk. Can you freeze the cream? I've asked my readers the same question and some people say yes. I haven't actually tried it myself but I'm willing to give it a go. I'm just not sure you'd be able to whip it after it's been frozen. So there might be a few technical technical issues, uh, but I'm willing to give it a go. I might pop one in the freezer actually this week and see how it goes. In response to those cranky people Danielle Doyle's talking about, dairy processor Murray Goulburn has apologised. A spokesman for the processor thanked the loyal Devondale customers and urged them to contact the customer service team for assistance locating any alternative products. We understand this news is disappointing for our loyal customers, particularly those who live in or visit remote areas and require long-life products. The difficult decision to discontinue long-life thickened cream, among a number of other products, was made in 2017 as part of ongoing efforts to improve our commercial performance via a more focused product range. 
In addition, we have been required to reduce our manufacturing capacity in response to a significant drop in milk intake from farms. This includes the factory in Tasmania where Long Life Thickened Cream was manufactured and unfortunately it was not cost effective to continue production of this product at an alternative site. Shepparton-based ABC Rural reporter Warwick Long has been following the story of Murray Goldman's factory closures for more than a year now and he says with the closures went a lot of the processor's products. That included 8-bar rice coffee range, which was a building range that they had in shops. Things like small flavoured milks as well, which Devondale were producing. They have been cut. And much to the chagrin of many around <laughs> Australia, long-life cream. And, and it's that one I don't even think the company themselves saw coming as far as people being quite angry about it because it had quite a cult following. Have you heard of any plans to, to bring Devondale Long Life Cream back or, or something of the like? There has been some talk from some in the industry. I must stress, not from anybody that I know can make it happen. And that's because no one really knows what's happened to the plant and, and the, uh, the technology around making this product. But I know from people in the industry that there is certainly acknowledgement of how much this product was loved and it's cult following, as I referred to it earlier. And and secondly, that it, it it can be a money spinner in the right hands. It won't be a Devondale product. It'd have to be a different manufacturer coming in to do this. Uh, but yeah, there hasn't been much more news than the fact that people in the industry know it's, it's a winner. There's just no one at the moment willing to make it. So who knows where to next for the production of Long Life Cream? But Albie Davey from Chatsworth Station to the south of Cloncurry still has to feed about 15 hungry mouths every night. So she's been working hard to find an alternative. We just have to cart extra eskies in and, and bring home cold cream, which certainly doesn't have the expiry date of the um, or the use-by date of the long-life cream. So uh, you just once it runs out, you just don't have any. I also noticed some long-life lactose-free cream there. How does that go? Well, it, it's okay for the savoury things, but you cannot whip it for cold for cold desserts or, or anything cold. It just will not whip. It just stays runny. So not, not much of an advantage there for the cold things. And yes, those product losses being felt right across Australia. Of course, if you'd like to read a bit more about the loss of that UHT cream, who would have thought it would have had such ramifications? Head to the RN homepage and search for a country breakfast. All of this week's stories are there. Thanks to John Jacobs for technical production this week. That's the program. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.